Welcome to The Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Robin King. And I'm Stephanie Shockley. And we're your hosts. Today, we're in conversation with the Reverend Ian Lash. Ian Lash is an autistic priest in the Episcopal Church who takes great joy in living out the priestly vocation to serve as pastor, priest, and teacher. His primary areas of interest in ministry include Christian formation and discipleship, virtue ethics, disability theology, and the liturgy or worship of the church. He is married to Lauren, who is also also an Episcopal priest, and he is the father to two young boys. welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. You're welcome. And we are very excited to have you on today. Um, And I have lots of questions for you. Where I might want to start, one thing we've said to a number of our guests is, can you tell me how um, disability theology or talking about disability became something that was of interest to you personally? By all means. So it was it it became a topic of interest to me as a as a sort of um, as an impersonal topic of interest um, in seminary in some ways when I wanted to explore uh, really theological anthropology what it means to be created in the image of God especially because so much of my self conception and self worth was tied up in cognition. Uh, and so thinking particularly through the lens of mental illness and disability, what does that mean for us as, as bearers of the image in the event that, you know, because so frequently and the, the, the only definition for the Imago Dei that I had had sort of internalized or been, been taught to that point was all tied up in cognition, was all tied up in rationality. Um, and so I got to wondering, especially in light of congregations that have, you know, parishioners with dementia um, or with mental illness, what does that, how, how do we, how do we maintain the, the idea that this too is, a, is still a beloved creature of God, a beloved bearer of the image of God, when our definition of what that image is, is so tied in cognition and rationality and, and quote, normal rationality, right? Um, so started exploring it, um, particularly in CPE. I tried to do a CPE through um, a psychiatric hospital, public psychiatric hospital in Washington, D.C., which didn't end up working out because the supervisor for that program ended up leaving right before the program was set to start. But I ended up at a, um, at a retirement community where I did a lot of work with patients with dementia, with varying degrees of dementia. Um, and, and explored theology of dementia and came across John Swinton's book, Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, which was really like revolutionary for me um, in terms of thinking about what it means to be a bearer of the image, and particularly because my conception was so tied up in cognition. So that's how it started um, and, and sort of came to realize ways in which even our Episcopal Church liturgy, the Book of Common Prayer that I really deeply love, has some 
some ableist assumptions at its core, um, including one of my favorite Eucharistic prayers, Prayer C, has, um, this is the, the drum I always keep banging, right? But this has um, this definition contained in it of what the Imago Dei is, and it says memory, bless us with memory, reason, and skill. Um, and so what does that mean if that's what we're affirming the image to be when we have people in our congregations who no longer have memory or at least to the same degree who don't have skill in the way that we tend to typically define it? Um, so what do we what do we do with that and how how is that how is that liturgy reinforcing unhelpful and even harmful narratives? So that's how I that's how I initially came to it. And then um, it's become even more of a topic of interest to me ever since my son was diagnosed autistic. Um, I was, <laughs> as a result of that diagnosis, I was diagnosed autistic. Um, and so coming to terms with my own disability and my son's disability and the ways in which, um, the ways in which our, our theology is not really or at least my theology as I, as I currently have it, is not really up to the task of, of addressing that. Um, so that's, that's how I came to it initially, sort of as a, as a topic of curiosity, a topic of interest, and, and really became more of a, of a sort of personal quest, I guess you could say. So there is a lot there, and yeah. you've touched on actually some of the questions that I had um, either from a previous conversation I had with you, but also from looking at your, um, your biography that you gave us. Um, but I wanted to go, there's multiple directions I could go at once, because I'm thinking both about all the theology you just talked about, but also about the personal story. And there's multiple ways this branches, I think. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you about the diagnosis of autism um, and I am hearing that it is becoming common um, for parents to realize that they might uh, that there might be a, be a diagnosis that has been missed for them when they're in the process of trying to figure out um, you know, answer a question about their children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and that's that's certainly something that I've come across, and and I don't know if there's if there's sort of hard data to back that up, but certainly plenty of anecdotal evidence of people whose children are diagnosed because we've gotten better at identifying what autism is in some ways um, and, and gotten more diligent about screening for autism. Um, and so we find, I, I think we're finding a lot more children, a lot more children are autistic than we realized. And as a result of that, there are a lot of parents out there who go, but wait a second, that's just like I was like as a kid. And that's certainly my story is my wife was much more attuned to the fact that our son is autistic or could be autistic um, than I was and certainly was sort of onto the game much quicker in part because she would say, look, doesn't this, I mean, this kind of looks like autism or this is what people say autism presents like. And I'm like, no, oh, that's, I, I was like that as a kid, like, <laughs> um, and well, come to find out. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> right. I see. I think, some of it too, um, and I'm not a parent, but in the parenting discourses I watch, one of the things that seems very different today than it did when we were young is parents take their children a little more seriously when they say this is weird. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wonder how much of that is helping with that 
identification and diagnosis. When your kid is sitting there going like, hey, this thing that is very normal for other children is actually very uncomfortable and weird for me. And they're like, oh, we should do something with that information instead of just like suck it up. Yeah. Get used to it. I, th- I think that that's true. I'll, and and what's interesting is recognizing all the ways that we're not really there yet, that we still don't truly recognize the the full humanity of children, right? That we still, in some ways, view them as just little proxy future future adults, future humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think you're right. I think we've gotten much more. We we take children a lot more seriously than we used to. Um, but at the same time, it's it's just remarkable, especially having a child in the school system, how much further we still have to go in a lot of different ways too. So tell me um, a little bit about being an autistic priest, and I'm assuming there are, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I assume that there are things that are challenging about it, and then, but that there are also things where maybe there are things about the world or about people that you get because of your own experience that that might be different. I don't know. So I'm curious about about both. Um, Sometimes people make these assumptions that a disability Mm. only comes with negative, and I, I don't find that to be always true, but I'm interested in your perspective on kind of any of that. Yeah. So um, the, there are a couple of things. Um, the, in terms of the challenges, the, those are in some ways readily obvious because those are things that I've thought about and, and thought about even before I realized I was autistic. Um, and those are, you know, before I, before I was diagnosed, before I knew I was autistic, I always wrote those off as, as problems with being introverted as a priest, right? that um, the pastoral care, like, I, I think I'm fairly, I, I'm passable, I'll say, at pastoral care when I'm actually with someone. But the instinct to actually, like, reach out and go be present with people isn't, for me, is not as, um, I, I guess, not as powerful or not as compelling as it is for some other people. And a lot of that is because because I'm such a private person or tend to be, and because I tend to, to sort of, um, you know, there are a few people that I want around if something really goes bad wrong, um, that I, I, my assumption isn't ever, well, they really want me there, (laughs) you know? Um, but a lot of times they do. And so I have to sort of fight against that instinct and realize that, that, um, wearing the collar, means that people view me differently, even if they're not like best friends with me, that they still want me there. They still want me to call that sort of thing. There are still ways in which, um, you know, there are, there are all sorts of things that come along with, um, with autism. One of, one of the most common um, sort of co-occurring conditions is rejection sensitive dysphoria, right? The idea that rejection really just feels genuinely terrible. And I think that's true for everyone to some extent, but realizing that there are ways in which some criticisms, and it's hard for me to quantify and, and identify which are which, but there are some criticisms, which if people offer them really, like really send me into a spiral, Um, and for the most part, I have a really thick skin and a lot of stuff doesn't bother me, but if it feels like rejection, then that's really, really difficult for me. Um, so those are a couple, I mean, those are a couple of the really obvious negatives in terms of positives. What I'm, what I'm, so a big part of my call, and you, you read this in the bio, a big part of why I'm a priest in the first place is, is 
the the um, the charism of teaching, right? Um, my mom was a was a uh, elementary school teacher for years and um, got into a literacy coordinator. So she was involved in the classroom for most of my life. Um, my dad is very educated and 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 enjoys sort of educating. Um, and so I've always, I mean, I've, I won't say always. I've frequently noted that there are a lot of clergy out there who who don't feel called to teaching, who don't take don't place a, a huge amount of emphasis on sort of bringing up in the faith, um, and that was something that was missing in most of the parishes that I attended. And so, part of why I'm why I'm a priest today is because I thought this is something that the church really needs. Well, it turns out that that too is autistic, right? Um, that the urge to like theology is essentially one of my special interests. And so I get to info dump on people <laughs> uh-huh. um, from the pulpit or, or during a forum hour and like engage in discussion about something that's really a, a special interest to me. So like even that, that's, that's, there's, a, there's an autistic component to that. Um, that I'm only just realizing that makes, I think makes me a good teacher because I really love engaging around these topics that for a lot of people seem really daunting. Right. I mean, I noticed you listed, um, in your bio, you listed virtue ethics. Yeah. And while there's nothing wrong with being interested (laughs) in virtue ethics, you don't hear, you don't run into that in a, in a bio very often. That's true. Unless you're talking with an academic theologian or something. Right. 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 We all know what virtue ethics is, but a lot of it's not, I don't know that that many of us who have put in the time to pursue really understanding it in a deep way. Right. And, and I'm sure people get tired of me talking about it, (laughs) but, uh, but it's, it's, it's another one of those topics that I think is really important. And even that, right. So like virtue ethics, the, the, um, the biggest takeaway and the reason I like virtue ethics is because the biggest takeaway for me is that we have to build up habits, that we have to build up habits of our, of our faith and our spirituality, because otherwise, otherwise we're just sort of hoping that, that, um, that right action flows out of right belief. Right. So virtue ethics to me is, is about the process of habituation, getting into the habit of something. Well, that's an autistic urge, right? Is that is to provide that structure for myself because without it, I go flailing, right? I th- and I think it's helpful to everyone because we need those habits. But at the same time, um, the reason I'm particularly interested in it has a lot to do with being autistic. This sort of seems to come back around to your um, conversation about Eucharistic Prayer C and the mm-hmm. um, the Episcopal Church's 1979 book, and I just I mentioned all those extra details simply because, um, you know, I I don't know I don't think Prayer C exists anywhere else. No, we we have it in ours. It's Eucharistic Prayer Four. We have adapted it slightly, but it has the same line. The Colin response is a little different, but it has that same memory skill and reason line. Interesting. Okay, I didn't want to. I didn't. I meant to um, ask you, Robin, and I didn't want to assume because, you know, Americans sometimes assume that everybody has the, the random thing that they have that would make no sense to no one else. <laughs> um, so, OK, you guys have it, too. Well, our um, it, it's in our book of alternative services, which we did in the mid 80s. And we did crib a good part of that off 1979. 
Yeah, because that was a prayer that was originally written for the 1979 prayer book. Mm-hmm. So that's why that's why it's not widespread necessarily in usage. Um, but they did, yeah, the, I think you you borrowed it and, and in some ways improved upon it. The difficult thing for prayer C in some ways is that the responses are so varied that yes. you literally have to be looking at the text if you want to participate in it. Yes. Or you have to be a former camp church geek who could do it from memory. <laughs> sure, sure. Speaking for myself. <laughs> Speaking, yeah, right, right. Sorry, just to engage in the liturgical nerdery with people who like that for a second. Uh, the other thing was we moved the epiclesis, which is one of the points of contention about it in the Episcopal Church. Right, um, right. Which I have mixed opinions on. Uh, when we have used it, I always say, I'll pull the choir aside the first couple times and say, hey. And, or, and sometimes even remind people before, like at the announcements, like, hey, you know, we're going to be using something with a lot of responses. So, you, you know, you might want to be looking at it or, or, or whatever, because no one remembers them. To get back to what we were saying, it seems to me that the, the interest in and um, all of the thought about virtue ethics does tie back into looking carefully at something like Pharisee and saying, this has some, this has some, you know, language that's a problem and is not in keeping with good theology of the image of God, which, which is something that needs, we need to be consistent about. Right. And, and particularly because we already have such ableist assumptions about what dementia means. And particularly because we have such ableist assumptions about, about cognition being a part of the Imago Dei, that it's not, I, I don't, I don't think anyone uses that prayer maliciously but and and it's possible to read it and not necessarily think about the Imago Dei, but it is it's also very very possible to read that line or hear that line and very subtly reinforce the prevailing opinion that once you lose memory or the capacity for memory as we expect it to be, then you've in some way lost the the status of image bearer, and that's. That's an unacceptable implication for me. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking um, this is something that we've talked about before in other contexts, but a lot of times due to safety and lack of appropriate people who can provide this care, people with dementia are not the ones in our pews, mm-hmm. but the people who love them and are grieving their loss of memory Exactly. Are. Exactly. And, and especially, I mean... The, the that's a tremendously difficult situation to be in. And if people come to church and what they hear reinforced is the idea that my loved one is no longer there. And I think that's what that line does is reinforce that, that notion. Then, then it, it becomes even more tragic than, than I think it already is. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's a, it's a line that, to me, and, and there are all sorts of debates about Eucharistic prayer C um, in, in any number, for any number of reasons, but it's that line that makes it, to me, utterly unusable. Until that's changed, I, I, can't, I can't bring myself to use it as much as I love it. How do you, do you, because there are people for whom that prayer is beloved. Mm-hmm. How do you handle that conversation for people who might be looking for a bit of a a template or a, a crash course in like, oh, if I'm going to start doing this, 
I, I know so-and-so, like, that's their favorite prayer, and they look forward to every time we do it. Yeah, I so, I mean, I thankfully, I haven't been confronted with that situation because I have, I've been in some, par- the parishes where I've served haven't had a strong um, tradition of using prayer C. Uh, I mean, the first thing that I would offer is I'm one of those people. Prayer C was the prayer that that Lauren and I used at our wedding. Um, so it's one that I deeply, deeply love. And there are the, the, to my mind, um, it may not be the best line in the whole prayer book, but it's the best original line in the 79 prayer book is in prayer C where it says, deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength. Yeah. We cut that one in our version and I miss it every time. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. they took it out. Oh no. Yeah. Because that's. But it's to me, that's, that's a, and not everybody needs that reminder. And I've had arguments with people about that line because they say, well, that's not me. That, okay, well, that's fair. It doesn't describe everyone. But I think we all have moments where we're coming for solace only and not for strength. Um, and I, I love, I love that reminder. And I think it's beautifully phrased. So there are parts of that prayer that I, I mean, I'm, this is why I keep banging this drum, right? It's like the people who don't like prayer C they're fine with the fact that the language is is an issue because it means fewer people actually use it. I'm very much invested in fixing it um, and and have written an article. I, I have a sort of proposal in that regard that I, I think would work without being offensive to most people. I'm open to suggestions in that regard. I just, I, it's, it's very difficult for me. There's a book... Um, by Lauren Winner, I think it's called The Dangers of Christian Practice, which keeps me up nights. It's about all the ways in which our liturgy can be malforming us, can be forming us in ways that we don't want to be formed. And I think about that every time I think about prayer C. It, it, is, I, I just, it's, it, it, I love that prayer deeply, but if, if we're intentionally or unintentionally reinforcing the notion that the humanity and the, and the divine image is lost from someone who has cognitive disability, then that's too, it's too great a price to pay for me. Now I'm going to look up that book and find out, see what's going to keep me up at night. Oh Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are, you know, there are definitely things. Um, One of the things that um, I don't think folks always realize is that ideas come from th- ideas come from thing from places you know things don't just appear out of, of nowhere and so when you have language um, that reinforces certain ideas when if you take things to their possible extreme conclusions there's really it becomes really really dangerous mm-hmm. how it yeah it's not just oh well you know no one takes that so too seriously or nobody really thinks that well you say something enough, it does start to stick. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, this is, that's the, that's part of the, the reasoning behind having a book of common prayer in the first place, right? Is that if we have an agreed upon sort of lexicon for, for our prayer life, then that's going to form the vocabulary of our faith. That's going to sort of shape the way that we talk about and think about our faith, whether we want it to or not. Um, 
and I think we, I think, yeah, the, the reality is that's always going to be imperfect. And especially when we're crafting new prayers, which prayer C was a new prayer for the 79 prayer book, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to inadvertently represent the thinking of the time that's going to become outdated in some ways. And we're going to realize, wait, there's an issue with this liturgy and it needs to be changed. Are there other places that you can think of in um, liturgy that's in use today um, that have a, a you know a similar kind of issue that you think are um, really doing damage to our concept of what it means to be in the image of God? I think um, the one that jumps out is the prayer. There's a um, I think I can't remember exactly where this is, so um, I can I can look it up. But there's a prayer either in the ministration to the sick or in the prayers and thanksgiving section that's for after surgery. Oh, those are so terrible. It's really, really bad. That whole section, really. And it says, um, I mean, the language that it uses is restore him, and that's in italics to use whatever pronoun, but restore him to usefulness, I think, is the phrase that's used. Um, before an operation, um, accepting your healing gifts through the skills of surgeons and nurses, he or she or they may be restored to usefulness in your world with a thankful heart. Just, I, I cringe at that. Um, and, and that's not a common prayer. That's not something that we use frequently, I don't think, but it's the type of thing that's used infrequently enough that maybe if there's a chaplain or, or a, a clergy person who's just flipping through the prayer book and finds that one, they think, oh, I'll use this one because, um, this is before, a this is before an operation. And like that, that idea, like the implication to me is that, that, we are only as valuable as we are useful. Useful. That, that word usefulness makes my skin crawl. I know. It's just horrible. It, yeah. I never, ever, and ever in my entire life have used that prayer. I mean, never. I know. <laughs> in fact, I forget it's in there because I would never use it. It's not something I would go looking for. Oh, oh, that's so bad. Yeah. The, one other I can think of. This is, I think, in the um, in the Good Friday liturgy in the Solemn Collect, um, and this is a part that. Well, so uh, it does say um, for the sick, the wounded, and the crippled, um, and then the conclusion is that God, in His mercy, will comfort and relieve them, and grant them the knowledge of His love, and stir up in us the will and patience to minister to, to their needs. Um, so like you have not only outdated language, but also conceptions that those, that those are the people who need to be the objects of ministry. Um, and everybody who's here is healthy and able-bodied and, and whole, and we need to do what we can to fix all those other broken people. Like, we got to scrape together our patience first. Right, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah, that's really, it's really terrible. So those are, those are the big ones. The, the, um, 
The other one that I'll say, and this is something that's a topic of conversation at, at my church right now, because we're um, actually starting this Sunday, starting on Pentecost, we will be switching the translation of scripture that we're using. We're changing to the common English Bible um, because it's a much more accessible, easily comprehensible translation of scripture. Um, and I know reading level is an imperfect measure, but from the NRSV, it's the NRSV is about an 11th or 12th grade reading level. Common English Bible is like seventh or eighth. So it's just significantly easier to understand, to hear. It's more natural sounding. Um, so that's, that's something that I'm working on and interested in is especially for those those parts of our liturgy that do vary from Sunday to Sunday, you know, part of the beauty for me, especially as an autistic person, but also I think part of the beauty for those with, with cognitive disability or, or, um, or, or hearing disability or, or any, any number of things, um, is that the, the liturgy being very, very similar week to week actually facilitates participation and facilitates buy-in in a way that it doesn't if it changes every single week. But those portions that do change every week, of which the, the readings are the big part, right? The readings and the sermon, we should be worried about how accessible those are. And I don't think that that's, I don't think that's something that we really think about. Um, and, and the reality is like an 11th grade reading level is a really high reading level. Like the NRSV is not an easy text to read or to hear and understand. Um, and so do we, do we really give a lot of thought to, are people able to listen to this in worship and, and really comprehend it? Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't see that as a major concern across the church and I'd love to be wrong about that, but, but I don't think a lot of people think about it. I was at a conference where we had a master biblical storyteller from the network of biblical storytellers. One of the things she said that has stuck with me, because I know it is often true in my preaching, is when um, she was not Anglican Episcopal, but when they switched from always having the text read to her from time to time telling one of the Bible stories, the sermon length dropped. Because mm -hmm. they no longer had to retell the story in the sermon. That like, oh, so what you missed in this part was this. And that informs the rest of it in these ways. Right. And I was like, that explains about half of my preaching. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. Um, and I was yes. like, oh. I mean, I'm glad I'm doing that. Because it seems like there's reason for it. But also, there are ways around it, which I have not given ongoing thought to other than to occasionally be like, yeah, that one's long weeks. I had to retell the story. Right. Right. I have a, um, a lectionary study group that meets on Wednesdays, really small group of people who are always there. Um, we're on, we're on zoom. Actually we're staying on zoom because not everybody in the group can actually come in person. Um, and they're really committed. And one of the things I find, I mean, I hope they find it helpful. But I can tell you that I find it helpful because I learn what people understand and what people don't understand. And if this group doesn't grasp something or they don't know what this happened in the story, I know that nobody else is going to get it when they hear it in the moment on, on Sunday morning. It's just, yeah, they're, they're a really good barometer for that. They, they help me know what makes sense and what doesn't make sense to people. So the other thing I think that informs 
so if why I'll retell the story and, and why that work is necessary is if you are in church every week, especially when the lectionary is like in a continuous section, which it isn't always. Right. I can say, remember last week and how this picks up on that, but most people don't come to church every week. Right. I've had a few parishioners who have read sorts of uh, books that I, I don't know what category to put them in. They're like, not exactly historical fiction, but kind of, um, but a variety of sort of popular books where they retell one of some part of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one going around, and I don't remember what it's called, but it's a lot of the book of Acts sort of written in a, in someone, the, a way where somebody who kind of imagines it and fills in the details. And I've had multiple parishioners who have come up to me and said, oh my gosh, now I understand. Like now these people are real to me. Now I understand what was happening. Now I understand why Paul or why Peter went to the centurion's house or what, you know, yeah, there's so much that people are, um, are, are missing. And I think it's for a variety of reasons, not just the translation. A lot of it has to do with formation, but yeah. And, and a lot of it has to do with, with that there's, that we're so far removed from the context. Right. And, and I'm doing a Bible study on minor prophets and we come across that constantly. Like you have to know so much of the context in order to really even understand what's happening in the prophecies. Um, so yeah, I don't, it's not a, it's not a fix all solution. Right. But we're, there are so many layers of sort of obfuscation. There are so many layers that distance us from the text that to me switching to, like, I'm hoping this goes well, because to me, it's such a no brainer to switch to a translation that's, that's just more straightforward and more common plain language because at least that's one fewer thing in between us and the reality the text is trying to convey. Yeah. Right. Cause there's a lot already, right? Language, right, exactly. Language, time, distance, culture. Like there's so many, you know, there, there are so, so, so many things that, yeah. Um, before I forget, I wanted to talk about the colics mm-hmm. um, because I think some of them are practically incomprehensible. Sure. They're just, some some Sundays I will I'll stand up I'll stand up front and I you know leading the service and I read the collect and I think what whose idea was this collect it doesn't uh-huh. what's happening here I mean I could sit down and parse it but no one is going to be able to do that in the brief moment as it goes by why are we doing this to our folks you know it's sure. just what what even is happening so I find that to be another place where the service is just sometimes completely incomprehensible. Yeah. And, and you know, in some ways I'm, I'm also a really big Shakespeare fan. Right. And in some ways it's a little bit like Shakespeare, right? If you've got someone who really knows it down pat, they can do some of that interpretation and, and, and deliver it in a way that, that delivers some of that meaning to people um, to an extent, right. But never perfectly, especially for some of the really um, obscure phrasings. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who hears, say, through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, and thinks exactly the way that Cranmer meant it, right? Like, I think everybody gets tripped up by that phrase. And they're like, the same? What? (laughs) Right. Like Trinity Sunday is coming up, and I'm already dreading reading the collect. Yeah. I, I always forget that one. Trinity Sunday, I'll be honest, is... Uh, 
this is one of those things I probably shouldn't say because it'll get me in trouble. But uh, Trinity Sunday is one of my least favorite Sundays of the calendar year, not because it's unimportant, but because I don't think we ever have we have a, a feast day dedicated to an abstract theological con- concept. And I don't think anybody knows what to do with that. And every other Sunday in the church year is concrete. It's an event. It's related to something very specific that you can sort of point to and say, here's what's going on here. Um, and Trinity Sunday is not that. Right? <laughs> I did. I did hear someone relate Trinity Sunday as it, especially falling after Pentecost, relate it to the cycle of um, Advent and Christmas, right? So Advent, you go Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, and then the Sunday after the Epiphany is is Baptism of our Lord. Um, and then Easter, you go Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and then Sunday after Pentecost is Trinity Sunday. And thinking about it in those terms makes it more helpful to me, but I still, like, then I'll just treat it like another baptism of jesus christ sunday right so we can talk about what that means and what baptism is right yeah i i think it's 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 always interesting i think it's um for me i always talk to people about it as this is how when we put it all together Mm -hmm. right like all the pieces together with what what are some things we can say about about god here's some things we can say about god let's put the pieces together um but yeah it's it's something, but that, that collect, I just, I don't even know. <laughs> We're trying to make things make sense. And, and there are, right. And there are, there are plenty of people out there that I've heard who use the Athanasian creed on Trinity Sunday. Um, and I, you know, that's another one of those things that people don't hear frequently. And I think are going to, going to struggle a little bit with hearing, you know, So I wanted to ask you, what kind of, so you wrote an Earth and Altar article, actually, about the problems with Prayer C. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious as to what kind of responses you got from that. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I, You know, some really good ones. Um, some folks who have, have said they never really considered that aspect of it. Um, and that's very exciting to me because I, I recognize that this isn't at the forefront of everyone's mind, right? Um, that that's not, theological anthropology is not everyone's major concern. Um, and yet, I think, I think the danger there is significant enough because of, the, because of the messages that we receive from the culture, you know, because we still have people who talk about um, dementia as inherently tragic and inherently a loss of humanity, right? Well, so... And- Challenging those is something, um, so one of my uh, many pet peeves about this is something terrible happens and then you realize someone has no theological framework to operate from in the middle of a crisis. Because if you're a good Christian, that isn't supposed to happen to you. And the problem is in the middle of a crisis is not the appropriate time from any perspective for me to like say, here, let's break down everything you have been taught to think and give you a new framework. If once you are diagnosed with dementia or a loved one is, is not the right time to say, okay, let me give you a new framework. We need to offer that to people and give them access to those 
questions and those different approaches before they know they need them. Agreed. Agreed. Be, and, and yeah, I mean, I, and, and especially because, I mean, the closest thing that we have to actual on the ground theology that relates to dementia in terms of, in terms of widespread um, within, within our culture, the closest we come to that is the pastoral care involved in say hospice. Right. Um, And outside of that, we just, we, we look at um, dementia as inherently tragic and inherently um, a loss of identity right? And a loss of value and a loss of personhood. Um, and you're right. That's not, when someone's facing that down, it's not the time to say, well, you've got a wrong conception. You just need to think about this differently. <laughs> um, but we, we have to, I think we have to do a better job of, of sort of exploring that beforehand. And so the people who have said, I've never really thought about this before, or I really appreciate that per- you, you bringing this perspective up when it comes to prayer C, that's great. I've had people who say, well, that's not really what that means. <laughs> and like, it's very hard for me to read it differently than that. Um, and and I, I try to lay that argument out in the, in the Earth and Altar article that when you parse it out and look at sort of what's surrounding that phrase, memory, reason, and skill, it's very difficult to tie it to anything scripturally other than the Imago Dei, right? Mm-hmm. So I've had people say, well, that's, it doesn't, that's not defining the Imago Dei, or I've never read it that way. Um, but I think a lot of people do, or, and even if they don't consciously, they're, they're told so frequently that, um, that this is a loss of identity, this is a loss of humanity, that it just sort of reinforces that. So I'm hopeful that we'll eventually um, look at it. I think that there are, there are people who, um, who I think are, are looking at it because we're in the process of looking at an expansive language prayer see currently. Um, and so I think that as part of that, um, hopefully there, there are people who are thinking can we change this? And, and is this language really, really something that we want to preserve? Or is there a better, a better way forward? Great. I will absolutely own that your discussion of it changed my point of view on this, on that Eucharistic <laughs> prayer. And, and that's great. I mean, like, I will 100% own that because my area of experience has always been physical disability. And so the stigma, the issues around stigma are different. Are, there, there are different issues. Sure. Um, and so that, so Eucharistic prayer C doesn't sort of like, you know, kind of hit any of my issues regarding physical disability, but talking to you about it. And then I went and reread the article and I was like, Whoa, no, now I can't, now I can't unknow it. Right. Like you said, there are some things that you cannot unknow. Now I can't unsee that. That's, and that's great. I mean, I, like I say, I don't expect this to be everyone's concern and, and I'm not, you know, I, I think I said, when we talked earlier, Stephanie, that I'm not unconcerned with physical disability, but I'm not going to put myself forward as an expert in that because there are plenty of people with, with real lived experience and real insight that I just don't have. Um, and I'm not the foremost expert on dementia or on cognitive disability or anything like that, but it is something that I'm very interested in. And to me, that's, it's, it's a, it's a very glaring problem in this prayer. Um, 
that I would love to see fixed because I love that prayer. It's really good. Now I can't unsee it. <laughs> now I can't unsee it. And I think now I'm thinking about something other than don't say elephants, don't say elephants, don't say <laughs> right. elephants. <laughs> um, but yeah, when, which is, but, but, but no, in all seriousness, now I cannot, un, uh, I can't unsee it. And it is really, um, you're right. It really is a, it really is a concern. It helps people draw conclusions that are not the conclusions we want them to draw. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I say, I don't attribute any maliciousness to anyone who's using it, to anyone who wrote it. I think um, for the longest time, I mean, it's, it is, I think, a, a misrepresentation. The, the more common way of expressing that is memory, reason, and will rather than skill. Um, and yet, uh, I, I think that was the prevailing understanding of what the Imago Dei is. But I think we've realized that that's incomplete, that that's imperfect, and that we need to we need to evolve um, what our what our conception is of what it means to bear the image. Um, but we can't do that if one of our prayers that we hear potentially every Sunday is sort of locking us into this prior perspective. Thank you for joining us for this conversation on faith and disability. And thank you again to Ian for joining us. We loved it so much that we have more that will be in our next episode. Stephanie, was there anything you particularly enjoyed or want to comment on from this first part of the conversation? First of all, like Robin said, we really enjoyed having Ian on the podcast and um, he had a lot of really interesting things that we talked about. Um, and I, I personally learned a lot uh, from talking with Ian and his conversation about, or his discussion about the book of common prayer and some of the issues with some of the content of the book of common prayer is really important. And I really liked talking with somebody that had some thoughts about and again, this is in his um, Earth and Altar article, which we'll provide a link to. But I really enjoyed talking with someone who had some thoughts about Prayer C that are different than what I've heard before. I've heard some other criticisms of that. And some people love it. Some people don't. But um, his connection to the issue of what is it to be the bearer of the image of God and what language should we be using and not using um, is really important and worth a lot of thought. Yeah, I would agree with that. One of the things I've really appreciated about the work we've done on the podcast is even though I like to think of myself as fairly well steeped in disability culture, there are still always new parts of it for me to consider because it is so broad. And that's definitely some of what Ian brought, brought me is new things to think about with new depth. I also, like, I have a, a long standing dislike of a lot of the colics in the prayers for sickness so it was also just nice to hear someone who had a similar opinion because they're they're very ableist 
Yeah, I was glad that he brought that up. Um, I don't really use them. And part of that is I, I did so much chaplaincy training and I never did, I never really did chaplaincy training with um, a lot of Episcopalians. So I wasn't allowed to just like get out the prayer book, right? Like you had yeah. to construct your prayers on the spot. So um, it, it's not something I would do. And it, even as a parish priest, I pretty much do what I did as a chaplain. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to construct a prayer on the spot based on the situation going on with the person that I'm going to visit. So I don't really use those prayers. I don't look at that part of the prayer book very often. And I was glad you brought it up. One of the things I was thinking about is what about when somebody does have a prayer book, whether mm -hmm. it's on their phone or they're, they've got the hard copy of the prayer book and it's, three o'clock in the morning and maybe they're flipping through the Psalms or they're th flipping through the prayer book and they run across those colics. That is sort of some of why I'm doing this work now is I had, I mean, go back and listen to episode one if you haven't, but I had surgery and then started getting chronic diagnoses and I was a church nerd already. <laughs> So I, I turned to the prayer book and I remember reading them and going, this is not good and not having the conceptual framework to explain that and just being really frustrated and kind of angry with my tradition for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as part of that, there was also nobody around me who could help provide that framework for why or language for why these might fail to meet the pastoral need I had because nobody was engaging in that work in this work so yeah i've never used them either <laughs> but because i knew i didn't like them <laughs> i just never did i remember before i ever went to seminary i was trained as a eucharistic minister when i was in my like early mid-20s and we had this kind of whole folder of things that we could use and i remember a general feeling of like queasiness or squeamishness about certain prayers but I didn't have the theological framework or understanding to say why I didn't like them. I just didn't like them. And I, yeah. they just kind of gave me just this awkward, this uncomfortable feeling. And what I like about um, the work that Ian's doing and the things he is talking about um, is that he's kind of explain, helping put words to those queasy feelings when you run into something. Like, That's something's not right about that, and I, but I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, some of my feeling in reading them, again, as a young person who had had like acute medical issues, but also now had, as I, the prayers don't leave space for that. They assume if you are ill, you will be made well, well which as we know, is not actually how bodies always work. Right. And the implicit assumption in a lot of the prayers for sickness is then if you are not made well, God is not interested in you, which I knew for other reasons was not true, but you know, like sort of the hallmark, especially in the Episcopal church, it's very prayer book centric. It's a little different here, but still like we're people of a common prayer book. The implicit message then is there's no space for me here. Yep. Ian says that much more intelligent much more like succinctly and with with other words um and i was really grateful for for what he brought to that conversation really excited that he's coming back for the next you'll you'll hear him again you'll hear the rest of our conversation in the second 
episode um, and spoiler alert, um, we enjoyed speaking with him so much and found that he had such good insight that chances are very good that we will, as our schedule and his schedule allows, we will probably be asking him to come speak to us again about some other related topics. been listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lenni Lenape and Treaty 6 territory. If you like The Accessible Altar, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealtar. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar, and join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, email us at AccessibleAltar at gmail.com. Thank you.